Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I'm your host, Ian, joined, as always, by Emily and Megan. Ladies, how are we today? Yeah, I don't know how to answer that after this section. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> it's, it's a strange one. It's a strange one. The, the icebreaker for today is a really funny, it's a really funny segue, I think. So Emily and I have been retreating up on a mountaintop watching movies, and the movies we've chosen to watch this time around are the John Wick franchise. Now, John Wick <laughs> is a great action movie. If you haven't seen it, Keanu Reeves is at his matrixy best in these movies. But one of the reasons that they're still good, I think, even as you push your way through the sequels, is that they do a great job of capturing the human fascination with the underworld. And specifically, I think, and Emily, you can way in here and drag me back down to earth if you want to but specifically i think they managed to play on our desire for holiness and here's what i mean there's something set apart about a world that is secret but very ordered a world that has rules that are not immediately apparent but that open doors for you right so in the in the criminal underworld there's this whole system where they have these gold coins and a gold coin gets you immediate cachet in a bunch of secret places all over this big city, right? And it's totally fascinating. But you can't just play on the same thing in the next movie because the second the second film has to come up with a new device that makes that underworld even more ordered and even bigger, and so on and so forth. And so with each iteration of the story, there's a new set of hidden things to discover. And I think that might tie into our reading for today, weird as it might sound. <laughs> I love it. Because our, our opening section is called Argot, Argo. Argot. Argot, which, which is the word that Hugo assigns to the dialect of the miserable, of the sewers. Right? Mm. Yeah. It, I did, I'd never heard of this before, but it just came up in something else I was reading, I think. No kidding. So this yeah. is not a Hugo-specific idea. No, no. This is like a some character in another book I was reading was like, if I could learn or if I could speak the argot of this language or whatever, which like is, is what he says. He says every discipline has its own argot. Uh, okay. Okay, wait, that's good. So you should tie that back into what I was saying before, because right now, as I remember myself saying it a couple of minutes ago, it sounds absolutely moronic. So <laughs> yeah, we got to finish that tie. In. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a weird parallel. I think that, I mean, in John Wick, the underworld is polished and luxurious, mm -hmm. and that draws our attention. Right. But there's not something unsimilar happening here even though the underworld is miserable it does there it has its own rules it has its own language it has its own society he says that the secrecy is what holds them together mm. and they have their own community and 
he wants to um, he wants to bring it to light because it's the it's the deepest suffering that society has to offer but there is something fascinating about it in the process it's still there's still something fundamentally human even in the very underbelly of society Maybe yeah that's and what it. is and what is that thing i mean a second ago i called it there's a human there's a human yearning for holiness by which i mean set apartness right there's we understand that there is a little lower layer in there somewhere and so we're attracted to anything that that promises us occult knowledge. And this passage definitely did give me that vibe. He's more or less pulling back the covers on the thing that holds that society together and suggesting, which is interesting for a bunch of literary scholars, suggesting that that the thing that lends it its community, like you said, Emily, is language. It's it's language itself. Yep. And I think that's a cool idea even if this was a difficult section to read, <laughs> which it was. <laughs> the features of the language are super interesting too. It's the language itself is structured in such a way to maintain that secrecy that holds them together. Once it's discovered by people outside the community, it evolves in such a way that it hides itself again. So that only the initiated can actually speak. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It is really fascinating though. And <laughs> one last John Wick comment, right? The, <laughs> I, who knows why we're tying these things I together <laughs> i'm loving it i'm learning a lot just, about john wick continue <laughs> their whole tagline is like rules are what set us apart from the animals yeah and that might be like the starting off place like hugo wants us to know that when you dig all the way down to the bottom it's still not something subhuman right, right. we're still finding something human that he believes deserves to be brought to light and then elevated. Hmm. So would you say, and Megan, you can answer this too. Would you say that he elevates Argot by revealing it or is he weeping over it? Look, here's humanity still trying to be humanity, even without any of the necessary tools, without any of the education, without any of the light that he has been discussing throughout the novel isn't it sad that humanity is still trying to be human down there or is he saying there's hope because humanity at its most miserable still tries to institute order and still tries to participate in language etc what about that section i think he said it was in the last century and it has devolved in the current century in the 19th century that he's writing in but doesn't he say something like in the previous century what can you do when you're miserable if you're in the sepulchral sep sepulcher you're dead but if you have sunk beneath that into misery what do you do you sing and he he highlights their songs and he says what they sing about or at least what they used to sing about is love so even when even then when you pressed on it love is what came out yeah i'm thinking this is hopefully goes together with what you're saying that that um argot is a language of combat against suffering so it's evidence of the human spirit fighting back and staying alive, even under this immense pressure, to sustain itself above oblivion, he says, or stand out against the abyss. All of that sounds hopeful, even though... Triumphant, even. Well, yeah. There's something about the human spirit that is triumphing in the creation of this subterranean language. I was even thinking, as he emphasized all this linguistic stuff that it's the 
it's man's ability to name things that helps him keep his bearings in the world. The power of the word is really significant. And the fact that even these miserable, uneducated human beings are finding words for things, creating a language to name what's happening to them, I think is, is triumphant and hopeful. So I, didn't, I wasn't depressed by the, the language of Argot. I did think it was interesting, though, and maybe this is too soon to, to get away from his philosophy and into his storyline, but Eponine, as soon as she meets Marius, she loses the ability to speak this language. And I wondered what that meant. Ooh, that is a good observation. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I don't know. I noticed that, too, that there's something when she's called out of herself to, to love someone without reference to herself, because what she does in this scene is extremely unselfish. Yeah. That is what pulls her out, out of this underworld. He talked. Yeah. He talks about how progress is going to shining light on things is going to elevate everyone so that eventually we'll find that the lower layer has also risen. Now, whether that is true or not is another question, but it does seem that Eponine has been pulled out by something. Yeah, I think it's important, even as we say, there's something hopeful in Argot, that it is a study in the, the basest part of human nature. And it's sly, the language is sly and treacherous and cunning, and it's the language of misery and deceit. And I do think that Eponine is crawling out of that by loving Marius and thinking of someone besides herself. So hopeful though it is that human nature stays the same, even at its most base, it might be even more hopeful that Eponine is crawling out of the baser side of it. Mm, well said. Yep. Well, yeah, go ahead, Emily. Well, I just, it, it's probably useful to note that in its historical context, uh, Hugo seems to be saying that to even speak of Argot is is disgusting, that his readers would be ha- would not understand why he wants to even look at it, which I wonder if that has to do with the French cultural heritage of, of pride in their language. I don't know. But so there's there is this tension between looking at the things that are unworthy to look at. And then also acknowledging that just because we've looked at them, or maybe it is the process of looking at them that brings it up and out. I don't know. Yeah. He says at one point, he's thinking about language and how uh, how man is divided. He's trying to examine human nature. And he says, the true division of humanity is this, the luminous and the dark. To diminish the number of the dark, to increase the number of the luminous, There is the aim. That is why we cry education, knowledge. To learn to read is to kindle a fire. Every syllable spelled sparkles. But whoever says light does not necessarily say joy. There is suffering in the light. An excess burns. Flame is hostile to the wing. To burn and yet to fly, this is the miracle of genius. When you know and when you love, you will still suffer. The day dawns in tears. The luminous weep be it only over the dark ones. That seems to be his project in this study of language. To name something is to make it luminous, to shine light on it and see it clearly, but it doesn't. It shows it for what it is. And what he's shining light on is depravity, which makes you cry, or should. So he's calling us to call things what they are and then to weep if that's what the truth elicits from us. 
That's also interesting information to put into our bucket as we try to figure out what he means by light and education that he thinks is going to result in progress. In the passage you read, he says, to know and to love are the things that do it. And I wonder if when he says to know, it isn't in kind of the biblical sense to know and be known. Mm. And it's that is what Eponine is experiencing in the next chapter. I wonder too, I know we always come back to this, but if it's a philosophical and then a theological step, like those are two separate steps in his in his journey and in his thematic interpretation of the world. First, it's this enlightenment idea. Education will tell you the truth about the world that you're in, but it doesn't have the ability to save you from what's true about you or about the world. So it can give you light, but it can't give you joy. And maybe joy is from that step, Emily, from the relational step of love being higher than everything you're experiencing in the world and love maybe coming down to you and lifting you up, you know, both in a religious sense and in a relational man-to-man sense. Yeah, I feel like we can't help but notice the the social comments that he's making here along the lines of looking toward a day when uh, world peace question mark um <laughs> it's a terrible moment for a sip of coffee <laughs> world peace <laughs> he, every, he, he seems to i don't know i'm still a little baffled by what he's doing here well yeah i was thinking as you were talking megan great comments by the way that helps me understand this, this passage i was i was very confused reading this whole thing on yeah. <laughs> like, oh, these are fascinating details hugo why <laughs> why are you telling me any of these things but so you're you're being very helpful. But what I was wondering is where he sees himself. How does the author consider himself and this work that he's engaged in? Where is he positioned in the philosophical and the religious and all these other conversations that he wants to wade into? Does he see himself in writing this as contributing to, as Emily put it, world peace? Um, <laughs> or is he is he musing and and wondering? Like the the line you just read about genius being what does he say to fly without burning <laughs> i just hear him talking about himself a little bit <laughs> to do it like <laughs> i do it genius genius anyway anyway let, let's move on to the plot oriented oh section wait wait, wait. no today. no that's a good thought and it's on the same page so i the section i was reading from for those of our listeners who are super academic and nerdy and have their book open and want to turn there with me as if we're in class uh <laughs> this is page 978 But he says, let us have compassion for the chastened. Who, alas, are we ourselves? Who am I to speak to you? Who are you to listen to me? All of that, he's acknowledging your question, Ian. Where do I fit in all of this? I'm just another man like you trying to, with my, my education and my ability to name things, participate in this conversation. But who am I to speak to you and who are you to listen to me? All of us are the chastened under divine justice. I wonder if there isn't a sense then in which he sees all of our language as argot as we struggle towards that final goal. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know about that. He seems he seems like Megan was saying before to be identifying argot as the basest expression of humanity. Mm-hmm. The um, language of the dark. I don't know. The to go back to a comment you made earlier, Megan. You said love is the thing that I forget how you put it. You put it in a way that sparked my thought. But 
it love doesn't always lead to knowledge, apparently, because in the next section, the love between Cosette and Marius, we're told, actually leads to forgetfulness. <laughs> not not to goodness, yeah. but to forgetfulness. Oh, man, there was a great line that says, oh, hold on. It is. Oh, here it is. Oh, I found it. It's so great. It is a mistake to suppose that passion, when it is fortunate and pure, leads man to a state of perfection. It leads him simply, as we have said, to a state of forgetfulness. In this situation, man forgets to be bad, but he also forgets to be good. <laughs> so significantly passion, not love. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that is a significant difference, but I definitely read it the way that you read it. That, that love, puppy love, which is what Cosette and Marius are experiencing for one another, is the opening stages of a great symphony. And they are not to the part that really has depth and understanding yet. They're in the opening throws, you know? And um, I don't know, maybe maybe love, and I'm totally going off the reservation here. I don't think Hugo has taken us here yet, but I'm hopeful that the love that Cosette and Marius have for one another will deepen and become the kind of thing that shines light on other people. Right now, though, they're actually missing everyone that they're interacting with, even each other. They don't even see each other accurately, you know? Yeah, actually, the greatest example of love is Eponine's in this section. I think that she she stands up for them, even though she's not going to get anything out of it in her own right. And the result is the tying together of our two chapters. She's un, She finds herself unable to speak to these men in Argot. Oh, man, she is something else in this chapter. I think it's so impressive the way that she is still a gutter rat, but she's she's luminous in this scene and fierce and terrifying to grown men. And I don't know. She's such a fascinating character. I'm liking her more all the time. Yeah, me too. I Throughout the second section that we read for today, I thought there was a great tension and contrast between his description of womanhood in Cosette and his description of womanhood in Eponine. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you guys think about that. He says some things about Cosette that made me chuckle. Uh, like for Like, for example... Give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> she made no mistakes and saw clearly. Okay, we can stop there, but we won't. <laughs> Woman feels and speaks with the tender instinct of the heart, that infallibility. Nobody knows like a woman how to say things that are both sweet and profound. Sweetness and depth. This is all of woman. This is all of heaven. Whoa, buddy. <laughs> he does. I... And we have acknowledged that I think he's poking gentle fun at these two lovers. But he does say in this section that, and significantly, it's another kind of language that they're speaking to one another, this language of passion. But he says uh, he pities the fool who hasn't experienced this. And this is a also a important part of the human experience in his mind. Yeah, I am answered. You're right. I just thought it was really funny the way he talked about Cosette. <laughs> Well, it's a weird tension that I think is uh, is really there, that they both aren't exhibiting the deepest kind of love yet. And are I, I think that Megan is right, that the result is they kind of go around harming everyone in their wake because they are forgetful of the people around them. But And yet Hugo says this is a good thing. And maybe I'm just I'm thinking slowly here. When you said a minute ago, you quoted that section, Emily, that 
whoever doesn't get the chance to speak this silly language of passion and love is to be pitied. That's Eponine. Here she is with love blossoming in her heart, but no one is speaking that language to her. So what do you do with that love when there's no one to speak it back to you? Evidently, actually, you do a lot of really good things. Here she is being selfless because of this love that's born in her heart and acting in, like you were saying, Ian, another facet of womanhood that's impressive. Her fierce loyalty and selflessness and thinking about Marius and not herself and putting herself in the way of danger. And it's impressive to watch. The response of these lowlifes to her in that moment is to call her a lady. Did you guys notice that? Instead of, you know, a sewer rat or whatever else they could call her, which are all true, as they walk away, they say, we're not going to fight you. We don't hit ladies. I thought that was profound. And she she knew that that would be their response, too. It's funny when he says laughingly about Cosette in multiple places about her perceptive heart and how it's infallible and her instincts are right on the money and all that sort of thing. It's true of Eponine. When she looks at them and she says, so there are six of you. I'm everybody, right? Like she's speaking with the voice of, of true suffering. She's saying, I am just like you. And so you are not, you are not fearful to me. I've already experienced everything that you can do. Right. And so I'm completely unafraid, but yeah, it's, it's almost as though everything he says about Cosette with a chuckle in his voice is actually true about Eponine in this passage, which is totally fascinating given, given that we would never compare them. I mean, looking at them side by side. They don't look like each other. One of them is well-kept and beautiful and well-dressed and innocent. And the other one is tarnished and dirty. And I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if Hugo has an, an accurate view of, of womanhood. He, he, he talks about women like ideas a lot of the time. Well, I think that's a tension that runs throughout the novel that he's aware of. There's ideals. Right. And then... There's the mucky reality of everyday life. And he's wondering how the two are ever going to meet. Before we continue on, I wonder if we should give a short summary of what happens in this section. That would (laughs) be great. I think that might be good. I kind of forgot that. (laughs) Well, after his long discourse on Argot, we return to Marius and Cosette, who are still deeply in love, and they have been seeing each other for quite a while now. They're, well, they've kissed they're falling, once. They've kissed. <laughs> they've, they've fallen into a little routine, and they don't really, they're not thinking about marriage or what comes next. They're just enjoying the moment. Meanwhile, as we know, Tenardier and his buddies, the robbers, are out of jail, and they have seen this house on the Rue Plumet as a potential target. They don't know that this is where Jean Valjean lives, who they were trying to get, but they've decided to plunder this house and they're on their way there. But it turns out that Eponine has been keeping guard over Marius also for a while, since she's the one who helped him find Cosette. And she sees what's about to happen and she stands up to them and tells them that she will not let them come into the house. And importantly, and I don't want to cut you off. I want you to keep going. But no, importantly, go she does that. She follows Marius and then protects him fiercely after he has been very, very rude to her. She's been meeting him in gardens, like as following him around and not approaching him. And then she finally does approach him for a conversation. And he's so caught up in himself and Cosette that he's rude to her and doesn't even acknowledge that his current happiness is due to her finding Cosette for him. 
And she reads all of that in his face and leaves him alone and then does this sacrificial thing. Yep. It's beautiful. Anyway, my, we had a listener comment and say something like, because we had been down on Cosette and, oh, and yeah. she was basically like, and also I would never let my daughter marry Marius. And I'd no. Be like, That's fair. He's such a butthead. <laughs> He's just little. Give him a minute. <laughs> well, the saddest thing I think in our passage for today is not even the scene with Eponine, but the scene with Marius's grandfather. That was the thing that really put into stark relief for me, how young and immature and insensitive and unwise Marius is at this point in his life. So caught up in his own desires that he doesn't even see his grandfather whose heart is breaking and who loves him and and isn't even being subtle about it anymore. I mean, he's been longing for Marius to return for years. He's dying and waiting for Marius to come back. Is he kind of an ass when Marius gets there? Yes. But Marius was a real jerk. That was my takeaway. He he turns on his heel and misunderstands his grandfather and abandons him. Yeah. So t- to get to that point, Jean Valjean has sensed the danger and has decided that he and Cosette are going to leave for England. And so this is devastating to the young lovers. And now Marius is seeking permission to marry her so that they shall not be split apart. Which is kind of silly because... He hasn't even talked to her father. <laughs> well, not even that. He doesn't have the money to be a married guy. And he's living with his college buddies. And there's, I mean, there's there's no sense in which Marius is ready to take this kind of a step. Which there's gives no reality, me even more yeah. compassion for his grandfather. Because he might be a, a foolish old man, caught up in a bygone era, and still talking the way he used to talk when he was young. and. He could have been more sensitive in the way he addressed his grandson, but he also knows all these things about Marius. He knows that he isn't ready for any of this, and he has come around the corner and recognized, I'm actually the thing that's supposed to be giving him security and wisdom, and maybe I missed my chance Mm. to offer him what I can still offer him. Oh, it hurts my heart so badly. I hate it. It was brutal. What a brutal read. Oh, man. Because... To finish the plot summary part, Marius decides he won't be parted from Cosette, is driven at last after years of pride to go to his grandfather and ask for permission to marry. And I think that that means probably an inheritance of some sort. He's looking for money and permission. And he goes to ask for that thing and his grandfather is delighted that he's there, but has a lot of pride himself. And so in his blustery way says, I see what you need. You're not ready to marry, but here's some money. Make her your mistress. And Marius is affronted because Cosette's honor has been impugned. And he turns on his heel and runs away. And his grandfather sees that he's miscommunicated, doesn't mean to offend, is so heartbroken, and runs to the window crying out for Marius. And that's the end of our passage. And it's so, so awful. And like to go back to our listener's comment, even though the ethics of what the grandfather is suggesting are wrong and out of place and of a different century, what he's saying is you are not ready for this next step. And he might be right about that. Like he might be correctly identifying Marius's current condition. Yeah. I also think 
there's a depth to what he, it sounds, you're right. It sounds immoral and we could just write it off. What's wrong to, to make her your mistress? That would be horrible. But what the grandfather's doing is saying, I get you. I'm like you. Let's relate. I was a young man and I understand you. And here's the way to be. And let's relate to each other. And Marius spurns the hand of friendship, which I think is why this scene hurts. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason he does that is because he has he's blinded by love as an ideal, by this this sweeping passion that has elevated everything around him and indeed elevated he himself to be something something less than human, oddly enough. And so at the suggest the mere suggestion that there's anything earthy about what he is engaged in sends him into a rage. Talking about relationship to the ideal at the end of the Argot chapter Hugo has a meditation on the ideal and I wonder if if it ties the two sections together and I, I wonder if you can help me understand it he says on page 995 must we continue to lift our eyes toward heaven does the luminous point we discern there come from those beings being quenched come from those being quenched like does the light come from suffering basically those who have sacrificed for it the ideal is terrible to see thus lost in the depths minute isolated imperceptible shining but surrounded by all those great black menaces monstrously amassed around it yet no more in danger than a star in the jaws of the clouds what a beautiful sentence must we continue to lift our eyes towards heaven i think he says yes Hmm. at least like so so yes marius is in love with an ideal does he have a choice about that or is that the necessary first step? I guess I wonder if that's what Hugo is trying to say. What do you guys think? That's a really good thought. It reminds me of the progression that we've been watching in Valjean who faced with the bishops. Uh, what do you, what would you call it? Saintliness, I suppose, dedicates himself to being perfect to reform in all of his ways. And it's taken him the whole course of the novel so far to, sort through the difference between the ideal and the reality of faith it's like a dialectic between the two he said a couple he said a couple times and including in this section that it's like there's a a great argument going on right we had had, he talked about it politically there are two sides and they kind of wrestle back and forth it's kind of a hegelian idea actually but but then here it's like the ideal is at tension or is at odds with the unideal with reality but the push me pull you between the two is actually what moves humanity forward i think is what he's saying i think you're right but i find myself a little confused (laughs) (laughs) i also think well this might not tie into exactly what you're saying but the image that he used of the ideal being untarnished even though we find it in the midst of such great suffering, reminded me of Samwise Gamgee looking up into the clouds and saying, there's light up there. There's beauty. No shadow can touch. You know, that was free. There you go. (laughs) But it did. It reminded me of that same scene and put me in mind of all of the silliness that we see in Marius and Cosette being a shadowy repetition or mirror of something really profound up in the heavens that's untarnished. So it's a picture and it's broken and it's silly, Mm -hmm. but the idea of loving someone 
is an untarnished ideal up in the heavens. You know, there's something profound and unbreakable in this thing, like a star. And, And I think we're seeing that played out. So his philosophical chapters really do support all that he's fleshing out in these characters. I don't know. I still think... I still think that this is a really great work of literature and it's working. His project is working, even though there's some silliness, you know? (laughs) I think even what you said, you can tie that all the way back to our conversation about Argot, that it's broken and it's disgusting and it is to be educated out of if possible. But there is still the reflection of the star in it. It mm-hmm. is still a it is still a picture of man's capacity for language. Yeah, it's still man doing what man does. In which I mean, in which we are created in the image of God. He's he's a namer. He's the one who speaks a word and creates with it. And even at its most base, humanity does that same thing. Still functions in the image of God, which I think is amazing. Well, you too. That was a lot more meat than I was able to come up with myself. <laughs> I'm really proud we of you. We have fun. Guys. The three of us. Oh, uh, we have fun. Oh, we, we have fun. Yuko is really giving me a run for my money. Dude. <laughs> yes. I was just thinking that. I was just comparing him in my head to Tolstoy. I think I like Hugo better. I really do. I think I like Hugo better. I need to read Anna Karenina before I have any any final thoughts on Tolstoy, maybe. But it feels like the philosophical bits in this novel are more connected to plot than they were in in Tolstoy's Ruminations in War and Peace. Yeah. They're at least shorter, you know, and, <laughs> and more varied in their content. <laughs> Tolstoy just kept saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> I just, I, I can't wait to see where he lands. Yeah. And because I'm not extremely familiar with Hugo as an author or, you know, he, I just, I've never, I've never read Hugo before. So I don't have a ton of opinions about him. And so I have no idea where he's going to land. Hmm. I, I'm tempted to say that ultimately the progress he's pointing to is something that's on the other side of of a death. He he just uses so much death and life imagery that I can't I just don't want to read him as being pat and or as or exclusively political. Yeah, yeah. or or naive in his politics. Mhm. Mhm. Well, on that forbidding note, forbidding <laughs> note, get ready for some death, ladies and gentlemen. Get ready for some death. Well, thank you all for listening, and thank thank you two for making it go today. That was super fun to listen to. Uh, please do join the conversation on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you guys. Um, we you probably noticed we brought up a listener comment in the podcast today, and we would love to do more of that. So mm-hmm. tell us what you think about Les Mis, and we will see you again soon. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.